here we are again, Tony. This is episode 517 of QAV. We're recording this on Tuesday, the 3rd of May, 2.06pm Eastern Standard Time in Australia. How are you, TK? Yeah, good. Thanks, Cam. How are you? I'm good. I am great. It's been a bit of a choppy few days in the market, Tony. I don't know if you've noticed. I have. You had to sell anything out of your portfolio? I did. I sold Credit Corp yesterday. I sold it like a week ago. What did you hold on for an extra week, did you? Yeah, well, I got the notice at night and the next day it sort of opened and went up above its sell line again, which it has today. Like I sold it yesterday and it's back above its sell line today. So, But, you know, that's how it goes. I've had a good run with it, made some money out of it, which is great. So I'm happy to sell. And if it goes back above the sell line, good luck to the people who bought it from me. And I bought Beach Energy, which has done well too in the last day or so. So, Beach Energy? Beach. Oh, Beach. Good old Beach Energy. Yeah. I was a little bit sad to sell CCP last week and it had done really well. I was, you know, I was quite proud of how it had done. But anyway, there you go. Rules is rules. Berkshire Hathaway's annual shareholder meeting was on uh, over the weekend our time. Did you watch it? Well, I, I tuned in the next day and looked at the YouTube clips that Yahoo Finance provided. Good stuff. <laughs> really good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Insanely entertaining, those two together. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say they should sell tickets, but I guess they do. They're just a couple of hundred thousand dollars a ticket to get there. Oh, you can get a baby Berkshire share. I know. Some of the highlights for me, Warren's joke about Alzheimer's. (laughs) (laughs) For the people who didn't hear it, basically the story was uh, they had a, a, a guy who'd been running one of their businesses for many years and Charlie would go and visit him from time to time and then they found out one day that he'd had Alzheimer's for quite a long time and they didn't know about it, but the business had been doing really, really well nonetheless. So Warren said, so that's our goal now is to fi- buy businesses that can be run really, really well by somebody with Alzheimer's. That's, yeah. a, that's a good investment. <laughs> what did Warren say? That uh, he thought he might walk past the office door and see the guy cutting out paper dolls. Yeah. <laughs> He said, maybe we should check on our managers every now and again more often in case they're cutting out paper dolls, yeah. That's the corollary of what famous Buffett's saying. He said, we like to buy businesses that can be run by idiots because someday they will be. (laughs) Well, yeah. He talked about Berkshire as a painting, which I liked. Mm. It's a big can. The world's a big canvas, and uh, he's just seeing what he can paint, everything that they do. It's like that's his art. Berkshire Hathaway is his art project, his and Charlie's art project. I love that. I thought that was a, that's a real, it's an insight into Warren's way of thinking about things, I guess. Obviously, he doesn't do it for the money. He's not really doing it for the power. He does it because it's an art project for him. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a game. It's his creative outlet. I mean, he's going to give all his money away either before he dies or soon afterwards. So uh, it's not about building an empire. Yeah, it's uh, painting a picture is a really good analogy. It's his creative drive. For me, it resonates more than it being a game because a game sounds a little bit shallow, a little bit flimsy, a little bit um, competitive or something. I don't know. And I'm sure it is all of those things, but an art project, you know, it reminds me of a great old line from David Lee Roth uh, circa 1985. But he put it in a lyric, I think, in one of his solo albums. I'd rather be an art project 
than just weasel out and wear one. <laughs> Make your life an art project. Make it stand, mean something. Do something creative with your life. And that's what Warren's done. So I like that. He, he had this great bit about, if you came to me and you told me that you owned 100% of American railroads and you offered me 1% for $25 billion, I'd write you a check right now. If you came and said you owned 100% of American agriculture and you wanted to sell me 1% for $25 billion, I'd write you a check right now. But if you came to me and said you owned 100% of Bitcoin, I wouldn't buy the entire thing off you for $25. Be a good deal if you could. Yes, I know it would, yeah. Probably not because if he bought all of it, then no one's going to – who's he going to sell it to? But – and he made the point, which he's made many times before, and I think it's the same point he makes about things like gold, is it produces – if I bought railways, I know that they would transport things. If I buy agriculture, I know that it's going to feed people. If I buy Bitcoin, it does nothing. It, it, It produces nothing. It puts out nothing. It's worth nothing. It's just, uh, you know, it's like gold, I guess. It's a thing that people... Yeah, a store of value. And, that's, and he's made the same analogy about gold in the past as well. But he said, I mean, the other quote he said, which I picked up on was, if I bought the $25 billion of Bitcoin, I would have to sell it back to you to make any money. Yeah. And that's, that, was, that was the insight for me. That's the whole thing about all these things, right? If you buy something which you can't value, which, you know, it applies to afterpay and tech stocks and all that kind of stuff, you're buying it because you hope to sell it back to someone. It's the bigger fool school of gambling speculation, right? I mean, I guess realistically, if you bought all Bitcoin, you could probably use it to buy things with because you can buy things with Bitcoin now. Really? <laughs> theory. Like, like drugs, guns. <laughs> <laughs> no, you could buy a Tesla with Bitcoin, I believe. True. You could, that's right. Actually, did, uh, did Musk rescind that? I think, I don't know, but I wonder if Musk is buying Twitter with Bitcoin. <laughs> that would be an irony if he did. <laughs> not sure. Not sure of the value of either. Just on Bitcoin, I love Charlie's <laughs> quote on Bitcoin. We're a lot dumber than the Chinese Communist Party leader in China. He banned Bitcoin. That's right. <laughs> And Charlie's other comment that I really liked when he was talking about how Robinhood, which uh, is the cheap or free stock platform, stock broking app over there, equivalent to like a self-wealth or a superhero maybe, they floated last year on the back of all of the- uh, Meme stocks. Yeah. What was it? GameSpot. Yep. GameSpot. And there was another one. Oh, AMC. No. Oh, yes, it was AMC. Yep. Was it? No, it was a block, wasn't it? AMC is a television network. Wasn't it a blockbuster or something? I thought AMC was a cinema chain. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, who's the, there's a network. Maybe it's the same people. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He was talking about um, how that's collapsed now. Robinhood's laying off people. Their share prices crashed. Their revenues have slowed down, missing their forecasts, all that kind of stuff. And then Warren tried to sort of shut him down a little bit. He goes, I don't know if we should be criticizing people and, and Charlie said something like, I know I shouldn't criticize people, but I just can't help it. So there you go. It's, it's okay <laughs> to criticize people only if you can't help it. That's Charlie. That's the, that's the, that's the Munger rule. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was a lot of fun. If you haven't watched it, like their combined ages, I think uh, Warren said is uh, 200, 190, 92 and 98. Amazing. <laughs> They're just so funny and erudite and, Humble, I guess, 
they always just talk about all the mistakes they've made, particularly Warren. He loves talking about all the things that he's uh, screwed up and missed and <laughs> got wrong. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's really funny and, and, and inspiring. And lots of good insights. I mean, there's plenty of other stuff they spoke about. You know, someone asked him a question about uh, does he take political stances and he said, well, I, don't, I didn't put my citizenship in a blind trust when I became CEO, but I learned the hard way that if I take a political stance and there's going to be someone out there who's offended and they're going to attack one of my businesses, so I don't do it these days. So good you know, words of experience. I remember back to those days, like going back into the 90s when uh, Warren began a gift-giving, like a dividend Berkshire Hathaway doesn't pay a dividend, but you could, he started a dividend and you could tell him where you wanted your dividend sent and it went to a charity, right? And then some reporter got onto it, worked out that there was a large amount going to Planned Parenthood. And then all of the uh, anti-abortionists and the right to lifers in the States started picketing the Berkshire Hathaway companies. And they just acquired one called Fruit of the Loom, which is a big, like the Bonds underwear chain of of Australia, but it's the US version. They make underwears and T-shirts in the main. And uh, their sales were really suffering. And the CEO rang up and said, hey, uh, this is not a great idea. <laughs> My staff are getting eggs thrown at them. And uh, maybe you want to rethink and say, Warren, shut down the program. He was cancel cultured. Before there was cancel culture. Apart from what they were saying, I mean, Berkshire bought a large stake in Chevron in the first quarter, which was announced. So before they have their AGM, they, they released their quarterly numbers, which they have to do to the market. And uh, it turns out they bought a big stake in Chevron. So, I mean, that's important for two reasons. One, because Warren's buying again. So he bought a big, he increased his stake in Occidental Petroleum, another big uh, oil company in North America. He's just revealed a big stake in Chevron. So he's following our sort of trend, I guess, of, of buying undervalued oil companies and, you know, waiting for the reversion to the mean. And undervalued gaming companies too. He said he'd been buying more Activision. Well, that was a different situation. So that was an interesting discussion he had. So Activision Blizzard is under takeover from Microsoft. And uh, one of Warren's two fund managers, independently of him, had already bought a stake six months ago in it. But then when Microsoft launched the takeover bid, there was an arbitrage available. So Warren doubled down into Activision Blizzard. Someone asked him, oh, now you're buying game stocks, Warren. And what are you doing that for? It was a really interesting discussion. He said, way back when we first started Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie and I used to engage a lot in arbitrage and takeover situations. And he said, it was, it's not for everyone. We'll make a few pennies, but we'll do it quickly. And that's guaranteed. And you know, if you do it enough times, it adds up. But it's not guaranteed. He actually pointed out that you know, it could, the, the acquisition could fall through. Something could happen. You could get stuck. True. Sorry, I shouldn't say it's guaranteed. It's highly likely. Yeah. And he said, you know, it is, there's a, there's a bit of a risk there, but. Given that Microsoft's the acquirer and Bill Gates sits on his board. It's <laughs> I think, no, Bill, didn't Bill leave? I think, did Bill leave his board? Oh no, he left the Gates Foundation board when Bill got into a lot of uh, hot water last year with the divorce and stuff. No, Bill was, oh, Bill may not be on the board anymore, but he was there at the Berkshire Hathaway AGM. As was Bill Murray. As was Bill Murray. Yes. As was Jamie Dimon, the um, head oh, of really? Citigroup. Yeah. So. It's the last time there's going to be a, a charity auction for lunch with Warren. How much are you bidding? Oh, it's going to be a million dollars plus to, to get there. I think the last one went for like four and a quarter million US, so I won't be bidding. No? <laughs> no. Come on. It's your last chance. 20 years ago, I thought about it when it was cheap, 
It was like the first one I think was like 20 grand or something. So I thought really hard about it. Yeah, but 20 grand to your net worth 20 years ago is probably what four and a half million is to your net worth now. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is what am I going to say? I mean, I, I get to meet Warren. I get to share a meal with him. We talk shop. But what's the benefit? You get a photo is the benefit to put on your okay. wall. Yeah. I've got a photo with Warren. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. You're in the background, not, not though. With yeah. Warren, he's in the background. Oh, he's <laughs> yeah. in the background. <laughs> when he was doing his paper toss contest before the AGM. I've seen that one. Yeah, yeah. You could get him to sign the hat that I bought you, the Warren the Whip Buffett hat. <laughs> you can bid the $4 million now. <laughs> I could bid it. I wouldn't be able to pay for it, but I could bid it. So you turn up at the lunch and go, oh, sorry, Warren. <laughs> Left my wallet at home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can I pay for this with Bitcoin? Yeah. I don't have any of that either, but. Uh, anyway, that's all I got. All right. One of our very patient U.S. listeners, Luke, who uh, is still waiting for us to launch our uh, U.S. version of the show, which we are going to get to one day, Luke, and our other American listeners. We're, we're working towards it slowly. And we, we talked to some guys yesterday from Toronto, value investors from Toronto, that might be um, useful for us in getting closer to that. Anyway. He sent me this article about the 2021 performance of active fund managers in the United States versus the S&P, just the index. And it's astounding. And we've talked about this sort of stuff before, but I never get tired. It never stops really just flooring me, blowing my mind when I read these stories. I really can't get my head around it or make sense of it at all says that the S&P 500 gained 28.7% in 2021, which is an impressive year, capping an impressive 100.4% cumulative advance over the last three years. That's crazy. I talk about printing money. And that was during COVID, right? During COVID, the world was supposed to shut down and they've grown 100%. Then it goes on to say the positive market performance translated into good absolute returns for active fund managers, although relative performance continued to disappoint. 79.6% of domestic equity funds lagged the S&P Composite 1500 in 2021. 80%, 80%, four-fifths of them that didn't match the S&P In 16 of the 18 categories tracking U.S. equities-focused funds, more than half the funds underperformed their benchmark, particularly noteworthy with the 98.6% of large-cap growth funds that failed to beat the S&P 500 growth, not only the worst-performing category in 2021, but the worst-performing of any U.S. equities category in the past 21 years. Large cap funds continued their underperformance for the 12th consecutive calendar year, 12 consecutive years, as 85% of active large cap funds trailed the S&P 500. Mid cap, 62%, and small cap, 71% funds acquitted themselves slightly better relative to the S&P mid cap 400 and S&P small cap 600, but still offered scant reason to celebrate. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. So scant reason to pay fees. That's the big big takeaway, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, 
and and then sorry, then I read another article like the same day from Australia. This is by Graham Hand from where's Graham from here? He's editor at large at First Links, FirstLinks.com.au, a Morningstar site. He says, selecting an active fund manager who can outperform the market over time is even more difficult than picking stocks. A talented and skillful team may utilize a style which goes out of favor for many years, making the fund managers look below average. Investors may become frustrated with the poor performance and leave at the worst time, attracted to last year's successes. And then he goes on to say that uh, most of them aren't doing very well. Consider the performance of the Lazard Select Australian Equity Fund since 2019, shown below. Its highly regarded and experienced investment team carries a strong silver rating from Morningstar. Yet in both 2019 and 2020, it was in the bottom percentile of its category of Australian equity large value. And value also underperformed growth. Almost last among over 100 managers surely tested the resolve of investors and analysts alike. It recovered somewhat over 2021, and in 2022 year-to-date, the fund is in first place as well as in the top few over 12 months. Going from last to first in a year or two says a lot about the fortunes of fund managers. Their 2019 return was 12.43%. 2020 was minus 10.75%. 2021, it was 17.21%. So uh, I don't know, man. Every time I read about these fund managers that uh, can't beat the index consistently, I'm like, why do these people still have jobs? Yeah, I agree. But you have a wife who was in the banking industry for 50 years, 40 years. What? You you know this. They're like, you know these people. You've had dinner, lunch. You play golf with these people. What, What do they say when you go, how do you keep your job? You suck. Uh, they don't see it that way. They're like, no, we, you know, we, we're a top quarter this quarter or whatever. They have their own ways of justifying it. But us as end users find it hard to justify. But look, you know, I, the, what you just read out, there's a couple of points to make there. The first article you read out resonates really strongly about how fund managers over time, the majority of them can't beat the index. And Buffett's been saying that forever. And that's why passive funds are becoming so big, index ETFs and index funds before then, and index LICs are attracting so much money now that, you know, really these guys, their jobs are under threat, the, the active managers. So eventually that, the wheel will turn and they will lose their jobs. The second article, I think, has it's a little less sympathetic for because I, if I had my money in a managed fund and it went from being the top performer last year to the bottom performer this year, I'd probably ignore that. And I, I'd always focus on the long-term returns because you know, even in my fund, there'll be some, there's some years when I've underperformed the index, but over time, you get a twice index return, but there's volatility. So I have more sympathy for the fund that's gone good last year and bad this year, provided that over time, it's been doing well. But there are all sorts of things going on in the funds management industry. I mean, and these are sort of structural problems, which no one seems to have solved. And I think one of the reasons why no one seems to have solved them is because the people who operate these funds are fairly subjective, even though they're value investors. They, you know, as far as I know, they don't have a system written down somewhere that if the key investor falls off his perch or her perch or gets hit by a bus, 
you know, the next person along doesn't pick up the checklist and keep running things as usual. It's, it's fairly subjective. And they do that on purpose to build up their value and their worth and they, they can charge more for it. But eventually, if someone's getting paid a lot of money over 10 years, they're going to probably retire. They're not going to stick around. They're going to go off and enjoy it. And the person who picks up the bat may not have the same way of doing things that the last person had. And then the returns take a nosedive. So there's key person issues. There's what I'll call pigeonholing issues. So if you're setting up a fund, the market wants to know what type of fund it is. Is it big cap, small cap, micro cap? Is it local shares? Is it overseas shares? Is it value? Is it growth? All these kinds of things pigeonhole the fund manager, which means that they do have periods of going in and out of style. The funds that tend to, or the companies that tend, or the investors that tend to do well, are the ones like the Berkshire Hathaways and, and people like ourselves, where yes, we're broadly value investors, but that's not the that's not the only thing we look at. We look at the when to buy and sell using our our three point trend lines, and we put a quality overlay on it, and all that kind of stuff. So, and you know, Berkshire Hathaway, yes, it's a value investor, but it also owns operating companies, and so it's it's the fact that we're not pigeonholed, I think, which gives us an advantage over fund managers, at least in Australia. Fees obviously have a huge impact in the returns. And I've said for ages, I think the, the two and 20 model is, is broken. That the, when you take those fees off anyone's performance, if you took 20% off the QAV performance, you're knocking off, you know, it becomes a 16% return over time rather than a 19.5% return over time or thereabouts, which is a huge difference in returns, huge difference. If we're still out, outperforming the market. But um, it's a much smaller return for someone when they compound for a long period of time than, than taking the full, the full share. So that, that has to play a part in it. And I guess the last thing which I should acknowledge is that, and Buffett's been saying this for years as well, it gets harder and harder to beat the index the bigger and bigger you get. So one of the issues for a lot of these funds is that they are, they're, they're managing billions of dollars worth of investments. Well, let's go back to Lazard uh, Select Australian Equity Fund, the one that I just mentioned in that article. They've been going for 20 years. This fund has been going for 20 years. Its fund assets under management is $59.2 million. That's it for that fund. <laughs> How does that compare with the Kynaston Fund? Uh, I'm not going to say. Reasonably well. <laughs> it compares reasonably well. <laughs> so it's been going 20 years. Their performance since inception is nine or annualized is 9.24%. So why would you pay them any money at all? And that's why there's still $59 million under management after 10 years. And the ASX 200 over the same period is up nine annualized up 9.07%. <laughs> so they have technically beaten the index over 20 years by 0.17%. And I like this in their fine print under their graph. It says investments can go up and down. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future performance. And you go, well, I bloody hope not. <laughs> I would. You normally say that when your performance is really good and you want to dampen expectations. In this case, I'd be like, yeah, you well, you would hope it's going to get better than that. So, yeah, they're not dealing with billions here, Tony. They're dealing with uh, Coniston-level uh, funds. A little bit above, but anyway, yeah. A little bit less. No, a little bit above. Yeah, okay. But no, you're right. So, it's um, look, it is what it is. It's inexcusable for, for us as retail investors to give them our money, given that performance. So, why do people do that? They just don't know any better? They're just put into these things by financial advisors? and Yeah. Have you heard of the Hain Raw Commission? Yeah. So, fund manager A, and I won't name any, goes out to a wealth management network 
company B, and I won't name them either, and says, if you push our fund, you get a trailing commission of, you know, 1% or whatever. So that straight away is a fee that comes off the top of the, the management fees, but their fund gets preferred by the employees in that company B in the, in the wealth management network. And so if mum and dad rock up and say, uh, where should I invest? They say, well, this one's pretty good. Here's 12 and they all have similar sort of returns. Oh, well, which one should I pick? Oh, pick this card. It's, it's the best because it's the one that the, the wealth management gets the kickback from. But um, people on TikTok can't talk about things. Can't talk about investing. Yeah. Uh, They're the problem. The people on TikTok are the problem. Yeah. The 22-year-old girls on TikTok, they're, they're screwing up people's financial futures. Or Phil Muscatello is on Shares for Beginners or we are on QAV, so we have to get licensed. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And, in fact, the Hame Royal Commission never addressed the, the issue of what's called vertical integration in the wealth management industry. So if you're a company that uh, – sets up these funds and you also have the financial planner network working for you and that company, you can still recommend your own fund. That wasn't addressed by the Hain Commission, but that's the number one problem in the fund management industry. It's all a big scam. Well, it pretty much is. I mean, there's a whole range of issues here, not the least of which is what's called the weight of money issue, which is basically every year, 10% of people's salaries goes into the superannuation fund and that money has to go somewhere. So even if the superannuation managers have wised up to the fund management industry, and I'm sure they have, there's still going to be a little bit that gets put into these underperforming funds, right? Because of the latest performance figures or, you know, because their members are saying, hey, how come this fund has just been rated number one in Australia by Morningstar and we're not investing in it? That kind of thing. Or maybe Greg Hunt is uh, friends with one of them and he wrote them a letter of recommendation. Who's Greg Hunt? The health minister. Yeah. You're not following that story? <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> okay. That's a whole other story at the moment. Some company that got uh, like $100 million of government funding to do something over COVID that never done anything before like that, just because they were the guy runs its good friends with Greg Hunt, apparently. Uh, we mixed in the wrong circles. And the last point I want to make on all this, and this is for people out there who do have their money with fund managers and who do make their own choices, maybe through an SMSF that they run or something like that. One of the big traps out of all this is to take money away from a, a losing fund manager and give it to a winning fund manager because you're always backing the last race, not the next race. And you can really get bad returns in doing that because as we spoke about before, the, the sort of regression to the means often means like the Dow, the um, dogs of the Dow effect that last year's losers are this year's winners, right? So if you're giving it to last year's winner, it's, it's probably going to come last this year and you just keep compounding loss after loss. Oh, dearie me. Well, what else have we got on this? Oh, yes. Another Queensland construction firm went under yesterday, owing more than $4 million. Probably not that huge in the scheme of things, $4 million, but uh, this is, I think, the third, maybe fourth construction company that we've seen go under in recent weeks. You buy your lunch with Buffett, $4 million. bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and why Queensland? What, what is it with the people up there? <laughs> not paying your bills? Well, I'm just, I'm reading the Queensland news. There could be more. Uh, I don't know. I, right. I picked okay. this up in the Courier Mail, which said, I have a subscription too. All right. What else do you want to talk about? Uh, Nevexa? Yeah. So our monthly performance is out. It's, um, what is it, 3rd of May today. So the report got sent through to me a couple of days ago. So for the month of April, our QAV portfolio was up 4.32% versus the market, which was up 0.52%. 
So uh, a really good month for us. And the, the three top movers were Yang Coal, which was up 36%. For a month? Yep, for the month. 30, holy crap. FEX, which I think is Phoenix from memory, Phoenix, uh, the iron ore company resources, up 24.5%. And Grange Resources, GRR, up 21.6% for the month of April. Good stuff. And you're going to do a pulled pork for us today, TK? I am. Well, I've got a couple backed up. There were some requests over the last week or so, but I'm going to start with AMP because someone requested it. And uh, AMP, just to, to give it, I mean, people I think who listen to this would know what I, who AMP is. It's a, a wealth management company, just speaking of wealth management companies, <laughs> which I wouldn't name before. So people can join their own dots. I'll just lay them out for you. They're a wealth management company. I have to declare that my wife used to work there in a senior role. She joined AMP. We came back from Canada. She was recruited. She joined AMP like a month or two before the Hain Commission, and then uh, everything went to shit. And, you know, I said to her, you should resign because this is going to stick with you on your CV. But she decided to stick it out for a year or two and try and help write the ship, which um, I think she did. She told me one of the reasons she joined was she really liked the woman who was the chairman there and thought they'd get along well, and that woman like lasted a month or something, didn't she? Fell on, had to fall on a sword. Catherine Brenner, the chair, that's right. So, yeah, so Jenny worked there. I'll declare that. She's not there at the, uh, anymore. She did resign eventually. That's by the by. It's worth talking through what's happening in the market with AMP at the moment, which I think is behind their, their recent run in share price. They've sort of jumped from about $0.98 cents to $1.18 in the last week or so, and largely because they've sold off the remainder of their infrastructure business. So AMP consists of AMP Capital and AMP Bank and an AMP, the wealth management business, did have a, a life insurance arm, but that was sold a couple of years ago. In AMP Capital, which was kind of the jewel in the crown for AMP, because it was like a mini Macquarie bank, doing lots of um, funds management work and investing in infrastructure for uh, large institutions. They've decided, AMP decided to sell off the infrastructure arm of AMP Capital. And uh, they recently completed the last, I think, of three transactions to do that. Anyway, the total transaction for all, all the bits that, that have been sold generated $2.5 billion Australian for AMP, and they've announced that they're going to pay down some debt and do a big capital return. So that's, I think, the reason why AMP shares have gone up. So as we know from other shares that have done divestments and, or sales and made capital returns, the share price takes it into account, and then when the capital comes back, it deducts it. So I'm just going to highlight that for people. I, I don't know the ins and outs of this process because it hasn't been announced yet. They've just announced the sales that's gone through. They haven't told us uh, when they're going to return capital or how much, but just be aware of that if you're a shareholder in AMP or thinking of buying it, that you will get a, um, a sizable check at some stage, but it may come off the share price too. So that leaves, after that's sold, there's still parts of AMP capital left. There's the bank, there's the wealth management in Australia and New Zealand, and yeah, that's pretty much it. So the Business, well, the business has, has been absolutely terrible since day one in terms of shareholder value. It, it's, uh, it was a life insurance business and, and it's, it's been around for a very, very long time and had a great name in the past and basically pioneered life insurance in Australia. So I, there was a few companies, I remember when I was a kid, that the life insurance person would come around to the house and talk about policies and collect the premiums and that kind of stuff through a big sales force. And you know, that's obviously been replaced with technology over the years. And, and now AMP's uh, sold off the life insurance business, as has all the, the major banks and other players in Australia. There's not many 
local, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any local life insurance businesses in Australia now. They're all multinationals who need economies of scale to, to make that business work. But uh, anyway, so AMP had a good name over the years by providing life insurance. They morphed that into wealth management. Again, had a good, a good name for a long time. But the Hain Royal Commission kind of uh, put an end to that good name, at least in terms of wealth management, and didn't just single out AMP, singled out other players in the industry. And since then, all the major banks have sold off their wealth management arms as a way of, uh, of getting over the, the, um, the Hain Royal Commission uh, baggage. AMP still has kept theirs and as, and as has what was called IOOF, but they've changed their name post-Hain, again, to distance themselves, I guess, from the findings. But the, the secret to wealth management and the secret to AMP going forward is going to be how does it make wealth management work economically and for customers post-Hain? And so the problems are mounting up and work against them at this stage to do that seemingly, but uh, I'm sure they'll come up with some kind of a solution. One of the problems, of course, is now that uh, to get a advice from a wealth manager, you need to get a, a personal statement done for you. And uh, there's, that's a fairly costly process. So every new customer to a company like AMP is, you know, two or $3,000 worth of cost, which they should pass on to their, their customers. A lot of customers can't afford to buy that. So a lot of work is being done on what's called robo-advice. So being able to use technology to roll out cookie cutter type uh, advice to not low-income people, but not but below the sort of premium net wealth or high net worth customer end of the market. And AMP haven't told us yet how they're going to do that. So again, I draw people's attention to that. If you're thinking of buying into it, I have no inside knowledge of what they're doing. They will find a solution to it, whether it's the best solution to it or whether it's the optimal solution to it. I don't know. And I also know that they've been working on it now for a couple of years and they still haven't announced what that solution is. So that's the $64 million question for AMP is how do they solve wealth management and continue to do it profitably? Otherwise, the company is a breakup play. And when I go through the numbers, you'll see that it trades around about its net tangible asset value. So it's kind of being valued as a breakup play by the market as well. So I would think if you invested in AMP at worst, you'll get your money back if someone takes it over or, or they keep selling off bits of the, and pieces of the business. And if they do happen to nut out the wealth management business and make it profitable, then there's upside from there. So that's kind of the business case summary for AMP in a nutshell. In terms of QAV, the numbers, uh, high, it's a large market cap stock. It, it's ADTs over $10 million. So it'll suit uh, all of us who, who want to buy into it. I'm doing these numbers on a share price of $1.16, which was the share price at the start of the week. I think it's now maybe $1.18, but still pretty close to that. Stock Doctor give this company a, a financial health rating of early warning. So we don't give it a, a point in our checklist for that, but it, it has been steady. So we give it a point for that. This is definitely a value play rather than a quality play, by the way. It's price to operating cash flow is, is as low as 2.24. And the PE is only 4.9. So on either metric, it's very cheap. The IV1 and IV2 for this stock is $1.21 for IV1 and $1.34 for IV2. So it's trading pretty close to IV1. But I guess I highlight this because of the different methodologies of calculating the intrinsic value in the first way and intrinsic value based on the forecast EPS in the second way, most often we'll see a big gap between those two IVs. In this case, the gap's quite small. And uh, I digged into that and had a look. And the reason for it is because there's a, there's a big fall in the forecast earnings per share coming next year for, for this company. I suspect that's because they've sold off this infrastructure business from AMP Capital. 
So it would have been um, you know, a fairly uh, profitable part of their business. I and mean, that's why they could, were able to sell it for a good price, but uh, that's going to affect EPS next year. That's also built into the share price. So you know, the PE will go up next year when the earnings fall, even though the, you know, the company's still essentially the same. But uh, it does mean that we can't score it on things like uh, growth. So the forecast growth over the, over the PE is, is negative, and so we give it a negative score in our checklist for that. Net equity per share is $1.22, so it's the share price is less than that and definitely less than uh, 30% plus that, book plus 30, so it gets two points for that. The company isn't paying a dividend, which I think is the right thing to do at the moment while it uh, restructures itself, so with no scores for that. Even though it's only trading on a PE of 4.9, it's not the lowest PE in the last uh, three years, so it doesn't score for that in their manually entered data section. And uh, all in all, it has a fairly low quality score of 50%, but it has a QAV score of 0.22, and that's largely because of how cheap it is. So we spoke yesterday with these people in Toronto who focus on turnaround stories. So this might be the kind of stock that they would focus on. It's definitely a turnaround story. And if they can get the restructuring right, and if they can get the wealth management issues right, then it'll be solved and the P will re-rate. So there's Definitely upside in this, but it comes with risks. And I want to point out that it's uh, only barely above its sell line too. So if it drops a little bit, it'll, it'll be a sell. Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. If you're brand new to QAV, I uh, just wanted to let you know that we have a free episode each week, runs for 30, 40 minutes. We have a premium episode that runs for another hour, usually, give or take, 45 minutes to an hour, where we answer, where Tony answers a lot of uh, listener questions. If you uh, want to check out the full-length episodes and uh, get access to Tony's checklist and the Getting Started Guide and the videos and get invites to our dinners that we have uh, from time to time around the country and our Zoom calls and all that kind of good stuff, go up to the website, qavpodcast.com.au and uh, sign up for the uh, free trial to QAV Club and you'll get two weeks of access to all of those things. Get to have a look, have a listen, have a have a sniff, have a taste. See if you think it's something that would be useful for you. Or you can keep listening to the free episodes forever. Or if you like the idea of value investing, but you just feel I don't have the time to uh, learn how to do it myself, then go to qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. And uh, check that out. It's our relatively new service where we send a couple of stock tips out each week and all people do is just buy those along with us and they don't need to uh, do their own work. Although I do recommend learning how to do it yourself because, uh, you know, Tony might decide he doesn't want to do this anymore tomorrow and then where are you going to be? So um, it's good to know how to do it yourself, but if you're not ready for that, check out QAV Light qavpodcast.com.au slash light l-i-g-h-t anyway that's it from me good luck with your investing have a great week we'll be back next week qav podcast is a production of spacecraft publishing proprietary limited authorized representative of afsl 520442 afs representative number 00129217 
Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.